Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Well, I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're going to be talking uh, about Congress, and in particular, the new Congress, what we can expect from that Congress, and perhaps tracing back some of the, the challenges that face the new Congress back historically to see what we can learn in, from American history about the possibilities and the pitfalls that face the new Congress as it now sits. And to join us for that conversation, we're delighted to have with us an old friend, uh, Professor Joe Postel. Joe is Professor of Politics at Hillsdale College. Um, before that, we were honored and privileged to have him as a student here at the Ashbrook Center, as an Ashbrook Scholar. Uh, he's since gone on to have a great, successful career in the academy. He's become one of the country's foremost experts on the United States government, in particular, the congressional branch and his history and his study of American regulatory agencies and policy is really remarkable and groundbreaking. So we have an expert with us today who knows a lot about American history, the American Constitution, constitutional principles, and American politics. Joe, thanks for joining us today. Great to be here. I'm always glad to be uh, on an Ashbrook Center program. The, the new Congress has gotten off to an interesting start. <laughs> sure has. <laughs> One of the tasks, of course, is for the House of Representatives, one of the two branches, to elect a speaker. It has occasioned controversy, a lot of conversation, both about how the House works internally right now, but also historical precedents and antecedents to the situation we're finding today. Tell us, if you could, to start off with what's your thoughts on the meaning of the struggle of Kevin McCarthy to be elected Speaker of the House? Yeah. I think this has been building for a while. People who've been sort of paying attention to what's going on in the House of Representatives for the last decade or so, uh, especially on the Republican side, for some reason, uh, lots of different explanations offered for why uh, Speaker Pelosi has not had as much difficulty sort of managing her party, uh, the members of her party, as say uh, Speaker Boehner and Speaker Ryan had on the Republican side. Uh, but this has clearly been building up, right? Uh, Speaker Boehner, clearly was about to face some sort of revolt from his own party. He, rather than force that issue, uh, he he leaves uh, the office and then they have to sort of find somebody to be speaker in 2015. Uh, very few people aside from Kevin McCarthy seem to want the job at that time. And uh, Paul Ryan reluctantly agrees to do it. And within a few years, he's gone as well. And so 
Um, this question of the speakership and the role of political parties in the House of Representatives and the power of political parties in the House has really been a sort of bubbling, uh, you know, uh, under the surface for a long time. And I think we saw a bit of a boiling over earlier, uh, just a few weeks ago, earlier this year. Um, I think very few people understand the broader historical perspective here, and hopefully we'll get into that in some of our conversation. But I think right now the issue on a lot of people's minds or during that debate was to what extent should we be voting as partisans and taking our orders from party leaders as opposed to representing our constituents and focusing on the local issues and the local interest rather than the national party goals and objectives? And how do we balance those objectives as members of Congress? Does the Constitution, does the theory of republicanism help to understand our way through that, that question? I think hopefully some members are thinking about it in that, that way, and it would be good if they, if they did. Well, that's a great question. Let's go to that question. To take us back to the Constitution, Article 1, that begins, I believe, in Section 1, all legislative power herein granted. Um, take us back to the founders' understanding of what Congress was supposed to be and supposed to do. Yeah. It's a little difficult to understand some of the intricacies of how they thought Congress was supposed to work. Article 1 is really silent about so much of that. There's nothing in Article 1 that says you should have an, an open amendment process. There's no mention of committees in Article 1. There's a very oblique reference to the speaker. The House shall choose its speaker. Some people have actually suggested it doesn't even need to be a member of Congress. In fact, uh, Donald Trump got a vote or two, I think, for Speaker of the House of Representatives a few weeks ago. Um, so the Constitution is quite silent on specifics. Uh, however, the theory of republicanism, I think, is quite clear, especially when you read the Federalist Papers. And that theory seems to suggest something like the following. Um, members of Congress, uh, well, the purpose of Congress is to represent the sense of the majority. And they use this phrase in the, in the Federalist Papers frequently, not the will of the majority, but the sense of the majority. And there's something in the, the construction of Article I, especially bicameralism, the division of the legislative power into these two very different entities, that suggests there kind of is going to be a filtering process by which public opinion is going to be filtered through these representatives. And so uh, teachers in particular, civics teachers often focus on these two competing goals of a representative, whether they should be a trustee voting for the long-term goals of their constituents or whether they should be a mirror or a delegate just focused on the, the wishes, immediate wishes of their constituents. I think the framers conception of republicanism is a modern conception of republicanism. It's a structural conception that says, the representatives are supposed to filter, refine and enlarge the public views as Federalist number 10 famously says. And so I think that's, that's principle number one. Uh, the purpose of Congress is not to do immediately what the public wants, uh, but to somehow refine public opinion. The second principle, I think, is a little more subtle, and it's rooted in the most famous Federalist paper, Federalist 10, which is about faction and the, how one deals with faction in a Republican form of government. And the somewhat paradoxical uh, or counterintuitive solution to the problem of faction in Federalist 10 is more faction. We extend the Republic, we bring in more factions and then have them fight with each other so that no one single faction can actually dominate the, the minority. Of course, where is that going to happen in our political system? The president can't represent multiplicity of interests. The president is elected by a national constituency. The, 
the courts can't do it, right? They're sort of insulated from public opinion. And so what Federalist 10 seems to be doing is saying, Congress is supposed to represent a whole bunch of different interests and they're supposed to clash with each other and they're not supposed to agree. And somehow through that process, some some form of consensus or bargaining or compromise is going to emerge. And so I think is a long-winded answer, apologies for, for going on at some length, but I think that's what you saw in some sense a couple of weeks ago, is that there were members who formed a different point of view than, say, the their fellow Republicans, and so there had to be a little bit of conflict in figuring out the way forward from there. So um, thinking of the role of the speaker, as you say, it's sort of very obliquely alluded to by the Constitution. Um, uh, if you can give us a little bit of historical background on the office of the speaker, now it's accepted, it's understood, and it's sort of understood to be someone who's high up in the majority party. Has has the speaker's office been essentially unchanged since the founding, or has it developed, evolved, and changed? It's changed dramatically, and I think this this gets at this is a good way to pick up from the last uh, sort of conversation, right? The, the Congress is, is supposed to be composed of all of these different members from all of these different interests. So what's the job of the speaker? Now, in the early days of the Republic, the job of the speaker was basically to serve as a sort of neutral, nonpartisan presiding, presiding officer. Um, and most when of the I first- think of that, I think of something like the British Parliament. Yes, that's right. Uh, now, it's interesting there. Um, we don't have a, a article one doesn't create a parliament, it creates a Congress. And I actually think you can get a long way towards understanding the differences between the British and the American legislative branches by thinking about those two words, um, right? Parlement, right, to, to speak uh, versus Congress, which is a sort of like coming together uh, from, a diff- from a bunch of different points of view. And Federalist 10 is really creating a Congress, not a national parliament, but a sort of broken up multiplicity of members. And so, the job of the early speakers was basically just to kind of neutrally preside over that mob as it tried to figure out the way forward. And if you look at the deliberations from the early Congresses in the 1790s and the early 1800s, it's so much more chaotic than the way things work today in Congress. Um, my favorite description, it's a fantastic historical description from the late 60s uh, by James Sterling Young called the Washington Community. 1800 to 1828, he calls the early Congress Babeltown. It's actually uh, one, legis- <laughs> one legislator referred to it as Babeltown. Uh, you know, everybody just kind of sits around and talks. Nothing really gets done. It's a sort of chaotic system. And the downside to that, where, this, where the speaker doesn't impose some sense of order, is that you really don't get much of anything done. And it's a very inefficient way to, to have a legislative process. That might work in 1805, when the job of the federal government is relatively limited and the number of legislators is relatively small. But as soon as you go further in in the 19th century, when the house starts to grow into 300 plus members and the job of the federal government grows much more robust with many more different tasks requiring specialization, the speaker has to evolve into a a new kind of role. And so the speaker's job as a sort of party leader really is a late 19th century innovation. And just briefly, I'll point to two speakers who are the critical people here. It's interesting, we know all of the presidents, but we can't name any speakers 
other than say uh, Sam Raber. That's right. I suspect almost no one could name any except the current one. Yeah. Um, the two, I think most powerful speakers in American history and most important ones served between let's say 1890 and 1910. Uh, the first is Thomas Brackett Reed of Maine. Uh, he's the most formidable speaker, I would argue in American history. And he's the first to see the potential of the speakership. One might argue Henry Clay does so in the early 1810s. Uh, he's actually a great speaker of the house before he's a great senator. Uh, but I think Reed is the first to really bring about the modern speakership. Uh, the second is uh, Joseph Cannon, maybe more well known to people because he has a large building on the hill named after him. Um, and that's a sort of pivotal period in the speakership where the speaker rises enormously in power between 1890 and 1910. And almost as suddenly the speaker loses power in 1910. Uh, the reasons for that are more complex, but uh, I would say since 1910, the speaker has been quite weak. And I would, I would point to Boehner and Ryan as actually an illustration of how weak modern speakers are rather than how strong they are. Why is it, is it, um, you, you say there was a precipitous drop and there's complex reasons, but around 1910, immediately when I hear a date like that, I think of, for example, progressive reformers mm -hmm. and their influence on politics. Is the, is the uh, reduction in the speaker's power connected to the broader progressive movement and reforms in Congress, or was it some other main cause? It's directly related to the progressive reformers. And so there's one critical member, a progressive Republican named George Norris, who goes on actually to be a great senator. Um, and he um, he's a progressive Republican. Most, most progressives are Republicans in 1910. They're not Democrats. This is difficult sometimes for our students to understand. Uh, but of course, they were a minority within their own party. So Republicans tended to be the majority in Congress. We stop me if you've heard this before. The Republican Party was a majority in the House, but there was a small minority of Republicans, progressives in this case, not Freedom Caucus members or, or the like, who wanted their party to let them control more of the agenda. And so Norris was a, was a, a key progressive. He introduces a famous resolution to strip the Speaker of the House from this Rules Committee. The Rules Committee is the committee that decides what legislation goes to the floor for a vote. And so... Um, he introduces the, the resolution on St. Patrick's Day in 1910 because he notices that while there's a quorum on the floor, the quorum is formed mostly of the Democratic minority and the progressive Republicans, and most of Cannon's supporters are out drinking, celebrating <laughs> St. Patrick's Day. And so he's got this one opportunity now where he has the majority. He introduces the resolution, and they debate it for three days. Uh, they are actually arresting members of Congress and bringing them back from the party out in the Capitol to get them. Cannons people are trying to accumulate the votes necessary to vote the, the resolution down. And the resolution uh, ends up passing and the speaker is stripped of these uh, powers. Then Cannon, and this is uh, relevant to today's debates, Cannon stands up right after this, this resolution passes, stripping him of, of control over the legislative process. And he says, well, there's clearly no longer a Republican majority in the House of Representatives. I can therefore no longer be the Speaker of the House. I'm now willing to entertain a motion to vacate the chair. And of course, the motion to vacate the speakership was a key point of contention in the discussions a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Cannon actually invites the motion to vacate the chair against himself because he's just been stripped of power. So he challenges the progressive Republicans who immediately move to adjourn because they don't want to take the vote. But the Democrats uh, also introduced the motion to vacate. Cannon calls upon them, and the vote actually 
takes place, but Cannon survives the motion to vacate. From there, because the speaker no longer controls the rules committee or is no longer on it, controlling it, and the flow of legislation then come out of the committee does not really go through the speaker in that powerful sense anymore. Um, you're saying that the speaker has lost the uh, power, as you say, to kind of control the legislative agenda, at least of the House of Representatives. And because the House constitutionally is involved, for example, in, in introducing money bills, appropriations, that, that's a very powerful loss for the speaker. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a somewhat of an oversimplification of a very long history. Um, the speaker has not been brought back onto the Rules Committee, uh, but starting in the middle of the 1970s, the speaker became more influential in choosing the members of the Rules Committee. So today, some of those powers that Cannon lost in 1910 have come back in a more provisional way. Um, and the three, I guess, just to try to tie it together a little bit, uh, the three powers that really define the speaker's authority in the progressive era were the power over the rules committee, the power over all of the committee assignments, because members like to get on committees where they can serve their constituents' interests, and then the right of recognition, um, the right to decide who could be recognized to introduce a motion or something like that. Um, today, speakers rarely preside over the chamber, so the right of recognition has become less important. Uh, the speaker has gained some control, again, over the rules committee, and also the speaker has regained some control over committee assignments. There's this thing called the steering committee that makes a lot of these committee assignments and the speaker has quite a bit of influence over that. So you might put it this way, you know, if the speaker's glass was completely full in 1910 in terms of power, um, which it was, they called speakers czars in 1910, which of course at that time was quite a, quite a low right, term. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, the glass was basically dumped empty uh, from say 1910 and the years following that, a couple of years following that. And it's been, I guess, glass half full since then. Speakers have gotten some of that power back, but not, not uh, as much as they would have had a century ago. So in thinking about the, the most recent um, speaker contest, you, you mentioned earlier that Speaker McCarthy did not face the challenges, or he cha faced challenges that Speaker Pelosi did not really face within her party. And in fact, I think I saw uh, a piece not published not too long ago that said Republicans uh, undermine their speakers, routinely undermine their speakers. And that's a good thing, the author argues. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what is it? Why is it? As you, you're talking about Speaker Boehner, then Speaker Ryan, and now Speaker McCarthy. What is it in contemporary American politics in the in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party that seemed, or is it just personality, that seemed to give Nancy Pelosi a firm control of the speakership when the Democrats were in the majority and Republican speakers have a much harder time maintaining that kind of control? Yeah, there's obviously a lot of debate about that. And so I'll give you maybe one view and then my own view, which probably diverges from it. Um, one view is that the Republican coalition and the Democratic Party coalition are just fundamentally different types of coalitions. Uh, that view says the Republican Party's coalition is an ideological coalition. It's much more interested in abstract ideological commitments than it is in concrete uh, sorts of reforms. The Democratic Party coalition, on the other hand, is a kind of interest group coalition. It's composed of various interests. And when you have to negotiate questions within an interest group framework, you can trade off, you can bargain. I can give you something of your interest, but I might not satisfy all of it, but you can maybe get 80% of what you want. I'll get 80% of what I want and we can work out a deal. 
but how do you compromise on ideological questions? Those seem to either be 100% or zero. And so that view suggests that Republicans have a much harder time agreeing internally as a party than Democrats do. Um, I don't fully buy that view. I think that the causes of the breakdown of, of party cohesion are much more structural. I think it's uh, mostly rooted in the questions involving who chooses the representatives, especially the, the direct primaries now being much more of a role in how candidates uh, get their party's nominations. And so every candidate has something of an incentive to be independent of their party because direct primaries are essentially you saying my own constituents in my home district are what will return me to power. And the more that I go with my party, the more I might actually betray my constituents who might primary me in the next uh, election. And so I think those, those structural causes which drive people away from aligning with their parties are present both in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And my gut is, we'll never be able to know, my gut is that if Pelosi, if the Democrats had held the House in 2022 and Pelosi tried to be Speaker again, she would have faced many of the same sorts of pressures from her own party as McCarthy will face from his own over the next couple of years. I see. So you think, for example, the, the challenge that was posed to her by uh, Representative Tim Ryan of Ohio, yeah. you think that would have recurred and we would have seen a similar situation in the Democratic Party as we have now seen in the Republican Party? Yeah, as well as, of course, challenges from more of the left wing of her party that wanted more action on things like the Green New Deal and, uh, say, more purely progressive kinds of policies. I guess this draws back to a deeper constitutional point um, that's been sort of lurking in the conversation and maybe really is important to bring out. Um, and that, that is this sort of questionable role of parties in our constitutional system in general, right? The Constitution- right, they're, they're not mentioned in the Constitution, for example. Yeah, it clearly doesn't anticipate political parties. But the problem is, I mean, and it's understandable why they don't like parties. We've read all of the, the writings from the founders about how they're divisive, how they prevent sort of disinterested behavior on behalf of the, the common good. Um, the difficulty here, though, is when you take the notion of Congress as this very pluralistic, disjointed coalition, multiplicity of interests, it makes Congress deeply inefficient. And so the question is, how do you get a bunch of people from a bunch of different interests representing a bunch of different constituencies to come to any form of agreement? Federalist number 10 is all about the roots of our disagreement, uh, all about the diversity of interests, the multiplicity of interests and parties. It doesn't say much about the basis for under which we will form a union and a unity. And so many critics of Federalist 10 have said, Federalist 10 solves the problem of majority tyranny really well but it creates a problem of majority rule. And majority rule, of course, is the sort of fundamental principle of Republican government, a legitimate majority, but still majority, majority rule. And so how do you get majorities to come together? Well, you've got to find some common basis on which they agree and some bond of loyalty that will make them vote together to advance that interest. And of course, I've just described the political party in basic terms. In other words, just to put it sort of short uh, form and crudely, Federalist number 10, boasts about creating a Republican remedy for the diseases of Republican government. So there's a Madisonian cure uh, for the diseases of Republican government, but that has a Madisonian side effect, which is that the majority has a hard time ruling in an extended sphere. Ah. And so interestingly, the first person to realize the Madisonian side effect was Madison himself, 
who, of course, goes straight to the House of Representatives after the Constitution is ratified and forms a political party designed to resist the Hamiltonian, right. in, his, in his view, innovation on the Constitution. So I think parties are necessary in our Congress. They're necessary to make Congress efficient. And that's what experience has taught us, I think, over the last few centuries. What about challenges? And I know this is something that you've spent a lot of time thinking about and writing about. What about challenges to Congress today? And I'm thinking along the lines, and maybe maybe these categories, you, you don't think they apply necessarily, but I'm thinking about constitutional challenges to Congress, institutional challenges, which we've talked a little bit about, at least with the speaker, we haven't talked yet about the Senate, but also, and then policy challenges. What do you think about, let's maybe start with the first one, constitutional challenges to Congress today. Yeah, the fundamental challenge that people have identified, I think, and you mentioned it very early on, right? Article one opens with all legislative powers here and granted are vested in Congress. Nevertheless, most of what we would recognize as legislation doesn't come from Congress today. It comes from the vast array of administrative agencies that make health standards, workplace safety standards, food and drug standards, environmental laws, financial regulation, all of that. And what Congress has done is it has outsourced its legislative power to the, to the administrative agencies. Um, this means that Congress now is sort of groping in the dark about what its purpose is, because back in the 19th century, Congress made the laws, and so members of Congress knew what they were showing up to do. What does a member of Congress do today? What is the job of a member of Congress? And one of the things, there's a fellow named Yuval Levin who's written, I think, quite well about all of this. Uh, one of the things members of Congress have turned to doing is performing uh, much more than legislating. And the rules of the House and the Senate have sort of lent themselves to this kind of performative behavior. The key one here is the transparency reforms of the middle of the 1970s, which have extended into the present day. Everybody loves transparency until you realize the unintended consequences of transparency. When you take a committee, which is supposed to be investigating a problem, and you put a camera in the room, then the members of Congress change their behavior completely. Instead of thinking about asking questions to learn something from the witnesses, they start making speeches so that they can cut clips to run on media. When you put cameras on the floor of the House and the Senate, members make speeches not to each other. They make speeches to the to outside the chamber to the public. And so members have started performing a lot more. They're not really legislating anymore. And those are two fundamentally different activities. The Constitution doesn't really say much about how a member of Congress is supposed to perform. It talks about how, how Congress is supposed to collectively legislate. And so I think that's a huge constitutional challenge. The delegation problem and then the performative aspect of Congress today. What about institutionally? There have been so many attempts, you mentioned in the mid-1970s, to reform by Congress, to reform itself from the inside institutionally. There were attempts at institutional reform by outside, for example, with term limits, which the Supreme Court struck down. Um, what institutional challenge do you think really faces Congress today? I see things almost entirely differently than most people do about uh, those institutional challenges. The big debate during the McCarthy uh, question over the last couple of weeks was, how do we take power away from the Speaker of the House of Representatives and return it to all of the representatives? And so there was a lot of uh, discussion o over how do we make for a more open process? Sometimes this is referred to as regular order. Uh, if you've ever seen the, you know, the short film, I'm Just a Bill, this is described- Oh yeah, old, Schoolhouse Rock, right? <laughs> yeah, the old Schoolhouse Rock, right? Which is, you know, a bill gets introduced, 
gets referred to a committee. The committee marks it up with all these hearings, goes to the floor. There's a dis- there's a debate. There's some amendments, and then it then it passes. That does not describe the process today in Congress at all. And so, for a lot of people, I, I think of Representative Chip Roy. The lack of access to everybody to participate in the deliberations of Congress is a is a major. Um, uh, complaint that they have that basically when bills reach the floor they they reach the floor under what we call closed rules which is you can't offer amendments and you can't debate it and so the the bill is decided before it even reaches the floor you just get to vote yes or no and oftentimes you only get like 24 hours to read the bill before it actually reaches the floor many of the new rules in this congress are meant to remedy this perception that the party leaders control everything in Congress. And there needs to be some decentralization of power so that everybody can participate. As I've tried to suggest, you know, in this this conversation, the constitutional structure of Congress makes the need for centralized control apparent. Experience has indicated that you can't have chaos on the floor because Congress will never come to any resolution at all. And that's part of the design, as Federalist Number 10 makes clear. And so I actually think the problem is something in reverse, is that the party leaders have too little control, and these coalitions are incredibly fragile on the floor of Congress. If uh, people might remember the debate over repealing the uh, Affordable Care Act, and John McCain shows up to the floor of the Senate and he puts his thumb down, and that's it, the bill is out, you know, the bill is done at that point. Um, Coalitions are extremely fragile. Parties are held together by extremely thin bonds of loyalty, and Party leaders are in a really difficult uh, situation when they try to actually positively enact any sort of legislation. I think Boehner and Ryan were indications of that. And so, uh, and McCarthy, I think, is an indication of that, how little control he clearly has or loyalty he has among his own conference. And so, so this is an interesting pivotal moment, I think, in Congress's history in terms of the institutional challenges. Is it time to return power to all of the members and just let this spontaneous process go where it may? Or do we really need some some sense of efficiency, some sense of responsibility, and party leaders can sort of stand for the the various platforms that they're supposed to be representing? So I take it, do, do you connect this institutional challenge to the constitutional challenge? And by that, I mean, um, if you your argument is we need institutional structures in Congress to make the lawmaking process more possible, more effective, is that be, so therefore Congress can legislate and not have to, as you put it, outsource it to regulatory agencies? Yeah, that's precisely right. Madison's design is too effective. Uh, the whole scheme is designed to, to break Congress up into a million little pieces that can't be put back together again. And parties are the only mechanisms capable of putting por- Congress back together again. And so the more power the parties have, the more cohesive your policy will be through Congress. And the more likely you are then to pass a law that is a real law, not a delegation of authority to a regulatory agency. Yeah. If there's one thing members of Congress can agree on, it is we want clean air. We want clean water. Let the EPA decide what that means. We'll, we'll take all of the, the praise for passing the law and pass the accountability on to the, to the unelected bureaucracy. So it's interesting when you look historically, <clears throat> the moments where there were strong speakers and strong party leaders in Congress, there were weak presidents. Uh, so who are the most powerful 
powerful speakers. It's Reed and Cannon. Who are the presidents during that sort of Gilded Age reconstruction uh, period? You know, Rutherford B. Hayes, Benjamin Harrison. These are not the people who just missed out on Mount Rushmore. Uh, <laughs> and of course, when the speaker loses power in 1910, you get the ascension of all of these really powerful presidents. Most people actually don't think that works all the way back, but it really does. If you think about who the most powerful person is in the national government in the first decade of American history, it's Alexander Hamilton who of course isn't a chief legislator he's a mem- he's a member of the executive branch and he's he's basically telling congress what to do because they have no internal leadership to set an agenda for for the legislative process okay how and some of our listeners are definitely going to be intrigued by your suggestion about the constitutional challenge for example and its connection to this institutional challenge but how could is there a specific reform or is it just a recovery of co- the understanding by congress of its job how could Congress recapture its role as the lawmaker and not the delegator? I mean, that's a sort of million-dollar question. I mean, is it going to take, for example, the Supreme Court declaring that kind of delegation unconstitutional? Or is well, it going to be internal to Congress itself somehow? Yeah, the court's been trying, sort of been taking little steps in that direction, right? Uh, I don't see the courts being robust enough in applying some sort of doctrine saying Congress has to write the laws to get the power to go back to Congress. I don't think it can do that job. It's got to come from within Congress itself. As far as what could spur that, I think the best way to get Congress to legislate again is to have members of Congress being held accountable for the actual laws that are being made in Congress or the lack of laws. And this requires elections to be about laws and policies more than it is about the personalities of the people who are running. And so the way to get elections to be about ideas rather than personalities, I think, is to return to some understanding of party platforms. Nobody reads a party platform anymore. Famous uh, Bob Dole in 1996, they ask him what he thinks about the Republican platform, and he says, I've never read it. (laughs) He didn't didn't have to read it. There was no need to stick to the platform to become the the nominee of the party. And so basically, members are their own platforms. Chip Roy has his own platform. Kevin McCarthy has his platform, right? Every member is their own their own platform. And the problem with that is you can't hold Congress accountable. You can only hold one person accountable. But if they all stick to the same platform, and then they all organize to get that platform implemented as legislation, then parties can be held collectively accountable and collectively responsible for what they do. In a way, this is almost like grafting a parliamentary system on top of our very unparliamentary type of system. That's right. It sounds like it. But a parliamentary system internally rather than constitutionally. Right, right. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents-based graduate program for teachers of American history, government, and civics. I'm Dr. John Moser, professor of history at Ashland University and chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. The MAG program is for teachers who want to master their craft by building content knowledge from original documents, from the words of those who lived and shaped our history, and not from textbooks or lectures. Our program is built around the discussion of original sources, and our faculty, both from both Ashland University and from across the country, is committed to this approach. We believe that the best way to get to know our past is to have a conversation with those who were there. James Madison, Frederick Douglass, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Theodore Roosevelt, and so many more. We offer two programs for working teachers and a broad selection of core and elective courses. 
You can learn more at tah.org slash programs. So let me ask you this. The third challenge that I put out at least was policy challenges to Congress. And maybe these are connected to the constitutional challenge and the institutional challenge. But what's your sense of right now facing this Congress, the policy challenge? I think the members of Congress think that the policy challenges they face are different from what the American people think their policy challenges are. That's interesting. What's the distinction? What's the difference? I think most members of Congress operate inside of institutional frameworks or webs that give them a distorted view of public opinion. This is well documented in media studies, right? The sort of echo chambers, feedback loops that happen in social media uh, uh, platforms. And the proverbial sort of Washington swamp. Yeah. So they think what the American people want them to do is to give speeches about cultural issues. My sense is that they're capturing a segment of the population when they get that kind of public opinion, but they're not capturing the people who are not engaged in those media Uh, outlets in those media networks. And there are a lot of those kinds of voters who I think want much more practical, interest-based kinds of solutions. So to put it more broadly, I think um, Congress is in a very ideological moment. They're wanting to sort of respond to all of the culture wars. They're wanting to have debates about all of these cultural issues. Members of Congress, I think, are less attuned to the interests that are prevalent back in their districts. And I think it's we've the pendulum has swung too far in that direction. They're increasingly beholden to powerful interests outside of their districts, frequently raising money in sort of national fundraising networks rather than building support back home. And I think there's a sort of disconnect between Congress, members of Congress and their local constituencies. So the policy, so what does that mean for the policy challenges of Congress? I think members of Congress, those policy challenges will differ based on the local interests that prevail in various uh, communities. And members of Congress are increasingly thinking in national ideological terms rather than in local interest-based terms. Members of Congress, I think, will be more successful the more that they put the phone down, stop fundraising, stop giving speeches, and spend just more time with their own constituents back home in their districts. What do you expect from the current Congress, both on maybe the House and the Senate side going forward, what a number of people are saying is, well, with divided government, the president being a Democrat, Senate being effectively in the Democrats' hands, Republicans effectively, probably maybe, controlling the House of Representatives, you're just going to see divided government. You're going to see, for example, budgets passed not in, in through a budget process, but by continuing resolution. And you're really not going to see any significant legislation or significant legislation that repeals legislation or anything like that, you're going to see a stalemate really for the next two years until perhaps 2024 breaks the logjam either way. That's the that's what I'm hearing out there in sort of the conventional wisdom. Is that right? I think mostly, yes, that's, that's right, especially with the Senate not going to be interested in taking up any of the really extreme measures that come out of the House, um, nor will President Biden signed most of the legislation that members of the House are talking about passing. So it's probably going to be a lot of uh, gridlock with one major exception. And this is what everyone's focused on right now. Uh, there's one aspect of, of the legislative process that uh, where the gridlock is, it sort of changes the incentives. And that is the debt limit, right? Where divided government gives you no action and everybody just kind of waits it out. If you default on the debt because of no action, then everything comes crumbling down. And so members, especially in the House, see that the leverage that they have is whether they whether they can 
be bought, whether their votes to raise the debt limit can be bought, and what are the concessions that they can extract from the other parts of the government in order to get that vote. Um, that negotiation, so far as I can tell, is proceeding on almost exactly the same lines as the 2011 shutdown with Boehner uh, proceeded. And so I'm, uh, I'm somewhat uh, pessimistic that it's going to work well, work out well, although hopefully some people have learned the lessons of history and there can be a little bit more of an incentive to compromise this time around. Speaking of history, does when you're looking at this Congress and its situation, are there historical analogies that you look back to? Is it 2011 or do we go back farther in the 20th century or do we go farther back in the 19th century? What does this Congress in this moment we're in remind you of? I think this is unprecedented. There, so there have been many situations in American history where we've had a kind of multi-party system. Think of the decades leading up to the Civil War and all of these really contested speakership elections where you'd have Southern Whigs and Southern Democrats voting together and Northern Whigs and Northern Democrats voting together. But this is unprecedented because the people who seem to have all of the power in Congress today, instead of being the ones in the middle, are actually the ones on the edges. This is a very curious and I think unprecedented situation. The conventional way of looking at Congress in this very common sense is that the people who have all the power are the people in the middle because they, by switching from one party to the other, get to decide what the majority vote is going to turn out to be. The problem with that assessment today is when the majority is really close, Republicans have what, like a 10 vote majority and no Democrats are gonna vote with Republicans, now the people who hold all of the cards are the people on the far edges who get to, with their 10 or 20 votes, prevent the Republicans from acting. And so what's really different this time around is that the, the, all of the structural incentives are pushing people to the extremes rather than to the middle. And I think Americans are really aware that that's what's happened in their country. All of the people who were used to compromise are now incentivized actually not to compromise. Something's broken down. And I think history, a historical study of Congress helps us to see how that, how that process of breakdown has occurred. Oh, that's fascinating. So if you could say what you expect from this Congress for the next two years, what would it be? Um, I expect a lot of brinksmanship over the debt limit. I expect a lot of performative behavior by members who um, use speeches to accomplish their individual ends, but a, a lack of legislative statesmanship uh, that we had in previous eras of congressional history. And so I'm hopeful that serious and concerned and educated citizens can think about how to re restore that sense of, of legislative statesmanship so that we can get back into a republic where people worked together to promote the common good rather than their own, their own agendas. That's a terrific term, legislative statesmanship. I love that. You don't normally think of, usually associate statesmanship with presidents, but to say there's legislative statesmanship, uh, a lot of our listeners, of course, love American history, and they would ask you, and maybe this is, this is a question I, I think I need to ask on their behalf, which is, who's your favorite legislative statesman in Congress? It's close, but I think Thomas Brackett Reed is my favorite uh, in history. Henry Clay comes a close second. Give us something about Thomas Brackett Reed because a lot of folks have heard of Henry Clay. They have not heard of <laughs> Yeah, so Reed uh, is known for a set of reforms in 1890 that we call the Reed Rules. And they are the most pivotal, that's the most pivotal moment in the entire historical development of the House of Representatives. Isn't it remarkable, just to pause for just one minute on this, that people can cite the presidents one after the other, 
and they have no sense of the statesmanship that's happened in, and this is, we're living in a republic, right? Not, not a monarchy. And yet our understanding of statesmanship doesn't go to these legislators. So I'll tell you a quick story about Reed that encapsulates why he was so great. Um, Reed's rules in 1890 came out of a fight he had over uh, a device Democrats. So he was a Republican speaker. Minority Democrats used this device called the disappearing quorum. And the disappearing quorum was according to the rules of the house. If the role was called, and you didn't answer when your name was called on the roll, you were actually absent from the chamber, even if you were sitting there. So somebody called it uh, the curious uh, uh, device under which you could have uh, corporeal presence and metaphysical absence at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Democrats would use this to make the Republicans think they had a quorum, and then the quorum would disappear because the Democrats would stop responding to the roll call, and all of a sudden they couldn't proceed with any business. So Reed challenges the Democrats as they start to refuse to respond to the role. He starts ordering the clerk to call them present. And Democrats go completely ballistic. Some of them run out of the chamber. There's a fellow named Buck McKeon from Texas who screams, make way for liberty. And he charges out of the, uh, out, of the <laughs> out of the House of Representatives. And uh, they appeal, uh, the speaker rules that they are actually present rather than absent. And they appeal the ruling to the whole house. So it's this great showdown. The New York Times has it all over the front page. And Reed is sustained uh, in this attempt to shut down, basically filibustering and obstruction by the minority. And they asked a bunch of people afterwards. So his two chief allies at that point were William McKinley and Joseph Cannon. And they both said it was Reed who who did it, Reed alone, and no other person in the house could have done what Reed did. Uh, And so uh, for that reason alone, uh, but there are many others, uh, I think Reed is worthy of of esteem, but also of uh, more attention than he gets these days. Fascinating, fascinating. What an interesting, uh, thought-provoking discussion of Congress as it has existed historically, but also the contemporary Congress we have today. Joe Postel, thank you so much for joining us on The American Idea. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, Remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.